Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. It's my great pleasure this evening to introduce the Honorable Hillary Rodham Clinton, our nation's 67th Secretary of State. As you all know, Secretary Clinton has distinguished herself over four decades in public service as an advocate for human rights, skilled attorney, first lady of Arkansas and of our great nation, and United States Senator from the great state of New York. Secretary Clinton joined the State Department in January 2009, and since taking on this very important post, has visited 64 countries around the world, promoting global economic growth, strengthening America's relationship with other nations, and advancing the concepts of democracy and civil society. Please join me in welcoming Secretary Clinton. Good evening. This is um, such a great treat, personally, to be back in San Francisco. And it's somewhat um, disconcerting because this is uh, only the third place in the United States that I have spoken since I became Secretary of State. And... The first place, which some may question whether it still is in the United States, is, of course, Washington, where I have (laughs) spoken uh, several times, and in Hawaii on my way to Asia. I have been invited to come to the Commonwealth Club uh, many times over the years and was unable to accept that kind invitation. Uh, But I thought it would be uh, an appropriate time for me to have this conversation. I want to thank Dr. Bitterman for that introduction, and I want to thank Gloria Duffy and Greg Dalton, who will 
soon join me on the stage to ask your questions and all of the officers and members of the Commonwealth Club. It's also uh, a great uh, treat to see former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry and his wife Lee right here in the front row, and I welcome them. And I, I know, uh, even though I can't see much beyond the third row, that there are a lot of uh, other friends. And I am so pleased to be here with all of you. Now, mostly this is going to be a conversation, but I, I wanted to just make a few, uh, a few points um, because I think it's important to give you a bit of an overview of what we've been trying to do since January 2009. Uh, clearly, for me as Secretary of State, it is a primary mission to elevate diplomacy and development alongside defense so that we have an integrated foreign policy in support of our national security and in furtherance of our interests and values. Now, that seems self-evident when I say it tonight here uh, in this gathering, uh, but it's actually quite challenging to do. It's challenging for several reasons. First, because uh, the diplomacy of our nation, which has been from the very beginning one of the principal tools uh, of what we do, has never been fully and well understood by the general public. Uh, it, it appears in the minds of many to be official meetings, mostly conducted by men in three-piece suits with other men in government buildings and even palaces to end wars and resolve uh, all kinds of impasses. And of course, there is still that element, not only with men any longer, but nevertheless, the work of diplomacy is still in the traditional mode. But it is so much more today, because it is also imperative that we engage in public diplomacy, reaching out to not just leaders, but the citizens of the countries with whom we engage, because even in authoritarian regimes, public opinion actually matters. And in our interconnected world, it matters in ways that are even more important. So we have tried to use the tools of technology to expand the role of diplomacy. Similarly with development, I have long been passionate about what our assistance programs mean around the world, how they represent the very best of the generosity of spirit of the American people. And USAID, which was started with such high hopes by President Kennedy, uh, did so much good work in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the Green Revolution, the absolutely extraordinary commitment that the United States, our researchers and our agricultural scientists made to improving uh, agriculture around the world transformed uh, the way people were able to feed themselves and to build a, a better future. Then over time, uh, USAID became hollowed out. It became truly a shadow of its former self. It became not so much an agency of experts as a contracting 
uh, mechanism. So <clears throat> the work that used to be done by development experts um, housed in the U.S. government became much more uh, a part of contracting out with NGOs here at home and around the world. So the identity, the reputation of USAID no longer uh, was what it needed to be. So when I came into the office of Secretary of State, I sort of followed the example of the Defense Department, which has for many years conducted what's called the Quadrennial Defense Review. And when I was in the Senate, I served on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I realized what a powerful tool uh, that QDR was, because it provided a, a structured planning experience internally for the Defense Department that would then be uh, shared throughout the executive branch, presented to Congress and to the public, and helped to guide what it was that our country would be doing for the next four years when it came to the nation's defense. So I embarked upon the first ever uh, quadrennial diplomacy and development review, which will come out uh, by the end of this year. It's quite an undertaking to do it for the first time, because you have to question all of your assumptions and your presumptions and try to figure out how best to present what we do in the State Department and USAID, for which I'm also responsible and to set forth a vision with strategies and objectives that will take us where we want to go as a nation. I'm also working very hard to make it not just bipartisan, but nonpartisan, because certainly our national commitment to defense is nonpartisan and has bipartisan support in the Congress, and I want the same for diplomacy and development. One aspect of what we're doing to promote diplomacy and development that is quite new and has special relevance for uh, the Bay Area and Northern California is our emphasis on innovation and our use of technology. Uh, we have been working very hard for the last 20 months to bring into the work we do the advances that many of the companies and the innovators, uh, entrepreneurs here uh, in California have brought to business, have brought to communications in particular. You know, innovation is one of America's greatest values and products, and we are very committed to working with scientists and researchers and others to look for new ways to uh, develop hardier crops or life-saving drugs at affordable costs, uh, working with engineers for new sources of clean energy or clean water to both stem climate change and also to improve the standard of living for people. Social entrepreneurs who marry capitalism and philanthropy are using the power of the free market to drive social and economic progress. And here we see a great advantage that the United States has, that we're putting to work uh, in our uh, everyday thinking and outreach uh, around the world. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples, because the new communication tools that all of you and I use as a matter of course are helping to connect and empower civil society leaders, 
democracy activists, and everyday citizens, even in closed societies. Earlier this year in Syria, young students witnessed shocking physical abuse by their teachers. Now, as you know, in Syria, criticism of public officials is not particularly welcome, especially when the critics are children and young people. And a decade earlier, the students would have just suffered those beatings in silence. But these students had two secret weapons, cell phones and the Internet. They recorded videos and posted them on Facebook, even though the site is officially banned in Syria. The public backlash against the teachers was so swift and vocal that the government had to remove them from their positions. That's why the United States, in the Obama administration, is such a strong advocate for the freedom to connect. And earlier this year, last January, I gave a speech about our commitment to Internet freedom, which, if you think about it, is the freedom to assemble, the freedom to, free, to freely express yourself, the right of all people to connect to the Internet and to each other, to access information, to share their views, participate in global debates. Now, I'm well aware that telecommunications is not any silver bullet, and these technologies can also, as we are learning, be used for repressive purposes. But all over the world, we see their promise. And so we're working to leverage the power and potential in what I call 21st century statecraft. Part of our approach is to embrace new tools, like using cell phones for mobile banking or to monitor elections. But we're also reaching to the people behind these tools, the innovators and the entrepreneurs themselves. For instance, we know that many business leaders want to devote some of their company's expertise to helping solve problems around the world, but they often don't know how to do that. Uh, what's the point of entry? Which ideas would have the most impact? So to bridge that gap, we are embracing new public-private partnerships that link on-the-ground experience of our diplomats and development experts with the energy and resources of the business community. One of my first acts as secretary was to appoint a special representative for global partnerships, and we have brought uh, delegations of technology leaders to Mexico and Colombia, Iraq and Syria, as well as India and Russia, not just to meet with government officials, but activists, teachers, doctors, and so many more. This summer, an entrepreneur named Josh Nesbitt from Frontline SMS, which designs communications tools for NGOs, joined a State Department delegation to Colombia. And on the trip, he learned firsthand about one of the biggest problems in the country's rural areas, injuries and deaths from unexploded landmines. He was so moved that this month he's going back to work with the government, local telecom companies, and NGOs on a mobile app that will allow Colombians to report the location of landmines so they can be disposed of safely. Similarly, in Washington, we're bringing together groups of experts from various fields uh, to join us in working on some of these big foreign policy challenges. Last year, we held our first TED at State conference. Just last week, uh, Cherie Blair and the uh, uh, cell phone industry around the world 
Uh, we convened a group to talk about how to advocate for girls and women to get access to cell phones. It's a new initiative called M Women, which will work to close the gender gap that has kept mobile phones out of reach for 300 million women in low- and middle-income countries. At USAID... <clears throat> We're pursuing market-driven solutions uh, that uh, really look to see how to involve the uh, business community. And we've just unveiled a new venture capital-style fund called Development Innovation Ventures, which will invest in creative ideas that we think can lead to game-changing innovations in development. As part of our first round of financing, the fund has already invested in solar lighting in rural Uganda, mobile health services in India, and an affordable electric bicycle that doubles as a portable power source. Um, the door is open to each and every one of you. I just met with a group from Twitter, and I know that there are a million ideas that uh, are born every day here, and if you have a good idea, we will listen. Because despite all the progress that we've made, we cannot uh, take for granted uh, that the United States will still lead in the innovation race. We're working to foster innovation at home and promote it abroad. And President Obama has set the goal of devoting uh, 3% of our gross domestic product to research and development and to moving American students from the middle to the top uh, uh, rankings in math and science, uh, and ensure that by, by 2020, we regain the position that we held for decades, which we have lost, namely having the highest proportion of college graduates in the world. And we need to make sure that American companies have the incentives they need to keep innovating. Companies must be assured that they if they sell their products around the world, they do so without fear of piracy, that their intellectual property rights are protected, and that the rule of law applies to everyone equally. And in our uh, efforts over the last 20 months, we've been raising these issues at the highest levels uh, across the globe. But we can't do this alone. We, we need your help. <clears throat> and one way to contribute is by joining one of the new public-private partnerships I've described. We recently launched a new mentoring program called Tech Women that pairs accomplished women in Silicon Valley with counterparts in Muslim communities around the world. Women from these Muslim communities will spend five weeks gaining skills and experiences here in California. And just this week, Twitter joined the program, and I hope many more will follow. I also urge you to become involved with the social entrepreneurship movement, which is proving every day there is money to be made through socially responsible investments. Putting financial and social capital to work is one of our goals. And next year, we will host a conference for social entrepreneurs and investors in Washington called SOCAP, S-O-C-A-P, at state. But most of all, we just want to to let you know that when I talk about diplomacy and development in the 21st century, it's not just what I do when I go off to 
Asia or Africa or Latin America or anywhere else. It is what we all do because I'm convinced that it is not only our connections through governments that will really chart the course of the 21st century, but indeed it is the people-to-people connections. And there isn't anyone anywhere who doesn't know that our free, dynamic society with so many opportunities for people uh, doesn't in some way hold out both promise and example for them. And so whether you care about Haiti, where we have worked from the very beginning of the disaster there to help with relief, recovery, and now reconstruction, or whether you care about the violence in Mexico from the drug cartels, and we're helping to put together an anonymous crime reporting tip line so that citizens can report what they see and learn without fear of being exposed, or whether you care about national treasures like those uh, in uh, Iraq that were endangered uh, over the last several years. So we worked with um, the Iraq National Museum and Blue State Digital uh, and Google Maps and Google Street View and Google to send engineers to Baghdad to take 15,000 pictures to create a catalog of the antiquities that uh, were in danger of being lost, or whether you care about empowering young people or mobile justice in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the site of some of the most horrific gender and sexual-based violence in the world's history, where we're planning a project to use technology to facilitate justice for survivals of violence in eastern Congo, or whatever it is you care about. We want you to know that there's a place for you to become involved and work with us at the State Department and USAID, because I believe strongly that you each can play a role in helping us chart a better future. Thank you all very much. Madam Secretary, thank you for coming. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Excited to be here. You know how to uh, draw a big audience, for sure. Uh, you mentioned freedom in your remarks, and Freedom House is an organization that does an index of freedom around the world, and this year they came out and said they've actually been four years of decline uh, in freedom around the world, uh, which is the worst that they've seen in the 40 years they've been measuring freedom. They say that half the world is free, half quarters partly free, and quarters not free. So given all the things you've talked about, the trend of freedom seems to be going in a not positive direction. Well, I think that um, there is uh, a, a worrisome trend uh, that despite a lot of the advances that I was just talking about and the uh, tools of communication that have such potential for uh, empowering and liberating people to pursue their own uh, goals in life, um, there are some counter-trends, and uh, we see efforts by government to prevent uh, the access to information, 
that we believe is a fundamental value and freedom. We see uh, governments that believe democracy consists of having one election, and that's it. Um, and so a lot of the uh, progress that was being made to promote democracy was not firmly embedded in the societies that had no experience with uh, what it means to have a democracy, the, the habits of the heart, the establishment of institutions from a, a free press to an independent judiciary and protection of minority rights. Uh, we also see that even in very developed uh, democracies uh, that have always prized freedom and uh, the right to privacy, there are new threats, such as the threat of terrorism, uh, that have caused governments around the world to become much more uh, cautious and careful and to try to, in their effort to keep their citizens safe, uh, impose uh, certain uh, rules and regulations that does chip away at uh, an expansive view of freedom. So we know there's a lot that is happening uh, that is uh, worrisome. Uh, but I still believe that the, the big, as opposed to the headlines, the trend lines are positive, but you can't take them for granted, which is why we're working so hard. Thomas Friedman believes at the New York Times that there's a correlation with the price of oil uh, and, and freedom around the world, that the high oil prices and Freedom House says the Middle East is where they're most troublesome. Do you think that the price of oil and what he calls petrodictators, does that have an influence on, on freedom, or is that not one of the factors? You, you're... Well, I, th I think that um, there has been uh, a, a correlation between uh, the the hunt for natural resources, primarily oil, uh, and uh, the attitudes taken by governments uh, that have those resources to husband them and protect them. But I don't think it's just that. There are other aspects of societies that are uh, rooted in their own history and culture that contribute to that. But it is fair to say that there is a so-called oil curse because when countries uh, discover oil, start marketing that oil, if they're not thoughtful, if they're not visionary, very often it becomes a small uh, elite that benefits from it. The benefits are not broadly uh, shared. Uh, and the progress of democracy and freedom is halted. And the necessity for democracy to deliver services for people in order to maintain uh, the support for uh, a, a new democracy uh, is uh, unfortunately diminished. So there is certainly a connection. In some places, it's more obvious than others. You talked about development as a key priority. Recently, the United States announced a directive on global development that was aimed on market forces, self-reliance. You know, how is this going to be different? You said that the 70s were the glory years for economic or aid, foreign aid, and then aid lost its way. So how is this really going to be different than past reforms of the, of the aid uh, mechanism? Well, it's going to be uh, a much more comprehensive effort to uh, rebuild USAID as the premier development agency in the world. 
Um, and in order to do that, we have to have a clearer focus of our mission. Um, and in the uh, President's uh, uh, speech at the United Nations uh, a few weeks ago in connection with the Millennium Development Goals Summit, uh, the President uh, laid out a focus on uh, trying to uh, enhance economic growth, build middle classes around the world, because that does correlate with stability and increasing political freedom and democracy historically. Uh, it also means, though, doing a really hard scrub of USAID. And uh, Dr. Rod Shaw, who is the new administrator, and I are working very closely to really change procurement policies, personnel policies, uh, try to streamline the delivery of aid. I'll give you an example. We have 24 different agencies in our government that provide some sort of aid, some sort of development aid. And it makes it difficult to speak with an authoritative voice in a country and to avoid redundancy and duplication. So if you're an African woman uh, in uh, a rural part of a country in sub-Saharan Africa, and perhaps you're HIV positive, well, you may be able to go one place and get uh, antiretrovirals from PEPFAR. Uh, you may go to another place and with a USAID program uh, get your children immunized. You may go to another place to try to uh, get uh, health care for pregnancy and uh, labor and delivery. Uh, and you may go to another place and try to get help with your, uh, your crops to get fertilizer and seed. And we have all these parallel structures. And the problem is that if you're an ambassador in a country, or if you're the Secretary of State, uh, if you call everybody who works either directly for the United States government or on contract from the United States government who's working in development to come together, as I have done in the past, I can guarantee you that the people in the room often don't even know each other and rarely work with each other. And at some point, that is not a sustainable model, because in our own tough budget times, I have to be able to not just come and speak to the Commonwealth Club, but also make the case to the American public and the American Congress that these investments are in furtherance of our security values and interests, and that we're going to be good stewards of those tax dollars. So we are looking to, through the QDDR, the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review that we'll be rolling out before the end of the year, we are looking to start in motion uh, reforms in how we do this business that will actually give us more impact for what we do and be very good stewards of the tax dollars that are uh, provided to us. Can you change the org chart? I mean, can you, I mean a lot of that... So people talk about cross-agency uh, collaboration, but until you change the reporting structure... Is it really going to change? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Um, one of my priorities and the President's priorities uh, was to uh, figure out how to rationalize and better coordinate uh, the, what we did uh, to end hunger and promote food security. So starting uh, right after I got there, I asked my chief of staff, uh, Cheryl Mills, to run a government-wide uh, process, which meant bringing the Department of Agriculture in, it meant bringing the Millennium Challenge Corporation in, it meant bringing 
uh, other agencies that have contact with people in. And we came up with a, a program we're calling Feed the Future. And it was hard. I'm not going to sit here and say that it was um, easily done. It was quite challenging to get everybody in the same room talking about their contribution and how we could uh, better uh, focus what we were doing to deliver results. But at the end of the process, we came out with a, a program that is going to focus on improving agriculture so that people can become more self-sufficient themselves. Uh, USAID, uh, the State Department, Department of Agriculture, and then other agencies, we are working in a collaborative fashion. In fact, that's where I met Rod Shaw because he was in the Department of Agriculture and was their designated uh, uh, person to come to these meetings. And so we are working very hard. Now, bureaucracy is uh, a challenge, no matter where you find it. And we are conscious of that. And you can't just turn some key and change things overnight. But we have emphasized our Feed the Future initiative. We've emphasized better organizing global health because we have USAID, we have the State Department, we have Health and Human Services, we have the Centers for Disease Control, we have PEPFAR, we have all these other uh, groups that are working on this. And then we have a third uh, whole of government initiative on uh, climate change. So we want to try to um, change the way our own government functions and then change the way other governments function and then deliver services in ways that make sense to people within their own you know, cultural uh, and political uh, atmosphere. Our guest today at Commonwealth Club of California, Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. I'm Greg Dalton. We have Afghanistan as a place where U.S. is trying to promote economic development and, uh, and democracy. And we have a question from the audience about how do you define success in Afghanistan? Well, I, I define it as a, a stable um, country that is able to defend itself uh, and is making progress uh, toward institutionalizing uh, democracy and better services for the people. In order to get to that, uh, we have to uh, work with the Afghan uh, government to build up their own security forces, and we're seeing uh, progress in that arena. Not enough, but uh, enough to be able to say we can see a path forward. We have to uh, help uh, rid uh, certain strongholds of uh, Taliban uh, insurgency uh, from uh, interfering with and preventing the uh, gradual expansion of security and stability. Uh, we have to really help the, the government at all levels understand uh, how better to function, and we have some uh, effective ministries and others that have a long way to go. So it is a, a multi-pronged approach that is both, from our perspective, military and civilian. Uh, when I became Secretary of State, uh, both our military and our civilian efforts were woefully under-resourced. We were basically treading water, and you either had to make a decision that the President was facing to try to move toward what I've just said is a uh, a model that I believe represents uh, success, or 
or not and just try to you know, pick off insurgents and, and leave it at that. It is a, a very difficult environment for all the obvious reasons that this audience knows because you follow uh, the news. But it is not a hopeless one, and it is not uh, a, uh, a failing um, environment. It is one that has a lot of challenges that are inherited, that are inherent, that have to be dealt with. It is not, its culture is not our culture. And the way that uh, we have tried to approach the civilian side of the equation is to, number one, increase our presence. Um, upon reviewing where we were, we had fewer than 300 civilians, and most of them were not in the country uh, more than six months at a time. Very difficult to build relationships, to mentor, to do the kind of outreach we were seeking. We're now over 1,000, and they're full-time very committed experts from the agriculture experts, the education and health and rule of law and everybody else. So it's been uh, an effort. Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that uh, I know what the end of the story will be, but I think that uh, we have made a a very effective uh, commitment and we have uh, an increasingly uh, effective uh, strategy that we are going to uh, follow through on. Reportedly, the U.S. now has a dual-track strategy of both uh, increasing bombings uh, with drones in Afghanistan, as well as opening a negotiating track with with the Taliban, according to recent reports. Um, What are the conditions or expectations of that dual-track strategy? What's the end game to negotiate with the Taliban? Well, this is an Afghan-led process, which we support. Uh, We have uh, agreed upon red lines, and there are two two tracks to that, Uh, what uh, is called reintegration and what is called reconciliation, and here's the difference. Reintegration is focused on the battlefield and the individual fighter who is ready to go home. And we find more and more of those, as reported by our our military commanders. These are mostly young men who were either uh, intimidated into joining the Taliban or chose to do so through family or uh, village pressure or because it was a way to make a living. Uh, For many years, the Taliban paid a lot better than anything else in Afghanistan. And this was a one of the problems as to why we lost the momentum that everybody thought we were building in uh, the prior administration is because there was no real emphasis on helping to employ young men and helping to build a security force so that there was a choice. So one of the first things we did was, it doesn't take much to realize how important it was to raise the pay of those who joined the police and the army. And we began to get many more recruits. And in reintegration, uh, if they are willing to leave the battlefield, renounce violence, uh, renounce any connection to al-Qaeda, and agree to abide by the constitution and laws of Afghanistan, we will help facilitate their reintegration. Reconciliation is uh, more along the lines of the classic negotiation among leaders. Uh, The leadership of the Taliban 
looking to see whether or not uh, they are willing to end their uh, fighting. We are just at the beginning of that process. Uh, you may have seen where Afghanistan has established a peace council under former President Rabbani to lay down uh, principles that will guide them in pursuing their uh, discussions with representatives of the Taliban. We have the same red lines. They have to renounce violence, give up uh, violence as a, as a means for uh, pursuing their goals. They have to renounce al-Qaeda because, remember, uh, President uh, Bush, you know, told the Taliban if they would turn over bin Laden, if they would renounce al-Qaeda, uh, the United States would not uh, go after Afghanistan, and, and uh, Mullah Omar would not. And so uh, we've said that's part of the condition, that you have to renounce al-Qaeda and uh, abide by the Constitution and laws. So you may have followed some of the uh, recent comments from General Petraeus uh, where um, our military forces have been asked to facilitate certain of the meetings that uh, Afghanistan's leaders have had. So we're just really testing the waters on this. Uh, and it is uh, very challenging because many of the leaders uh, live uh, not in Afghanistan but in Pakistan. And many of the uh, sanctuaries for the Taliban in Pakistan uh, is where the planning and the organization and the direction uh, and the coordination with al-Qaeda uh, continues. So we have also, as part of the review that the president ordered uh, back uh, in uh, January 2009, we have engaged much more intensely uh, with the Pakistani leadership, both the civilian government and the military leadership uh, and have made it very clear to them that we want a different relationship, but we expect uh, their uh, assistance in going after um, not just the Pakistani Taliban who threatened them, but the Afghan Taliban, uh, the Haqqani Network, and al-Qaeda, which threaten us. Let's talk about Pakistan, a uh, nuclear-armed country, obviously very important strategically to the U.S., and then all of a sudden these floods which displace 20 million people. Does that put Pakistan as a potential failed state or certainly complicate the process or make the country, the regime, more vulnerable because of now they have all these displaced people they have to deal with? Well, it certainly makes a complicated uh, situation even more so. It doesn't make it a failed state. You know, Pakistan has strong, uh, some strong state institutions and some uh, very strong cultural um, ties. Um, the military is obviously the strongest, best functioning institution uh, in the country. Uh, and we have worked hard to support the democratically elected government, but we've been very frank with them about what they needed to do to become an effective government. And as you saw in the aftermath of the floods, uh, the civilian government was very slow to respond. Uh, the military uh, responded as they had after the earthquake of 05, and the United States was very much involved in trying to help that uh, relief and recovery effort. What has happened with the flood has set back uh, Pakistan's development. The last time I was there in July, 
I announced as part of a multi-year package of aid to Pakistan uh, some infrastructure projects focusing on water and electricity uh, that were very needed. Now, following the flood, the infrastructure needs are even more uh, pressing. Bridges that have been washed out, agricultural land that has been uh, uh, eroded, uh, other kinds of uh, systems like dams that were providing electricity, either damaged or destroyed. So we're taking a hard look, and next week uh, we will have a, another meeting of our strategic dialogue with the civilian and, and military leadership with whom we work, and we're looking at how we can better target it. But I have also been really clear with this message to Pakistan, in Pakistan as well as outside of Pakistan. The United States cannot and should not be expected to help Pakistan uh, with its uh, development needs unless Pakistanis do more to help themselves. And that includes reforming a tax system that does not tax the elite and the landed um, uh, propertied class. Uh, Pakistan has one of the lowest tax per GDP uh, percentages at 9% in the world. And so we are working with them on reforming their tax system uh, because some of the richest people in Pakistan pay less than $100 in all taxes. Uh, and when I was in London, um, no, where was I? Brussels yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, with um, Kathy Ashton, who's the newly appointed high representative of the European Union, and we did a press conference about aid for Pakistan, and I said, and she certainly echoed our expectation that the elite of Pakistan do more to help their own country if they expect us to help them. Another nearby country. Another nearby, also nuclear-armed country. I have a question from the audience about Iran, whether we're closer to engagement or confrontation with Iran. We are um, uh, hopefully closer to engagement on their nuclear program. Uh, when we started to try to put together an international uh, coalition in support of sanctions uh, that really would bite, um, most people thought we could not get China and Russia to go along, and we did. And then the United States followed with our own sanctions, the European Union and Japan, and other countries followed with additional sanctions. And from all that we can determine from the analysis of uh, economic activity and political debate within Iran, uh, these sanctions are having an effect. Uh, therefore, we are hoping that the recent outreach by the Iranian government uh, to Kathy uh, Ashton, who's our, uh, our representative for what's called the E3 plus 3. In other words, we have a, a group of uh, the United Kingdom, France, and Germany, along with Russia, China, and the United States, as the negotiating forum on the nuclear program. And we hope to get a meeting scheduled. We haven't had one for a year. Uh, it, is, uh, it is by no means uh, clear how seriously the Iranians will engage, but if they come back and at least negotiate, uh, that's uh, going to give us additional insight and information. I mean, one of the problems 
with dealing with Iran, in addition to all the other historical problems we've had, is that there is a lot of uh, debate and uh, division within the government. And trying to see them make a decision whether they will negotiate with us uh, illustrates clearly the division between uh, the elected leadership, despite the flawed election, the supreme leader and the clerical leadership, and increasingly uh, the uh, Revolutionary Guard, which is playing a, a bigger and bigger role inside Iran. Uh, so we, we are watching this very closely and working closely with uh, our partners in this process. Another nuclear question from the audience is about the START treaty. It's been negotiated. Uh, when do you think it will get through the Senate? Uh, well, it got through the uh, Foreign Relations Committee on a bipartisan vote, which was very good news. Um, we got three Republican uh, votes and all of the Democrats. Uh, if there is a lame duck session, we are hoping that the Senate could take it up uh, after the November election. Uh, we have a broad-based bipartisan uh, support from people like Bill Perry and George Schultz and others who have both written and uh, testified about the benefits of this treaty. It is part of our, our broader effort to um, find areas of uh, common interest and collaboration with Russia. Uh, we've also broadened and deepened a strategic dialogue that is trying to build some bridges in not just the leader level between you know, President uh, Obama and President Medvedev or between me and Prime Minister Putin and my counterpart, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, but going much deeper into the government. Uh, Russia is uh, trying to uh, gain accession into the World Trade Organization. We are supporting that. Uh, Russia has opened up uh, its territory for transit of uh, lethal uh, weapons and uh, equipment into Afghanistan. Uh, Russia is working with us on counterterrorism, counter narcotics. Uh, so we are, are trying to find as many areas as possible while still speaking out about the occupation in Georgia and about the repression of human rights inside Russia and the other areas where we don't agree. Um, and the START Treaty is obviously a, a major. Uh, uh, result of that collaboration. During your confirmation hearings, Alaska Senator Murkowski asked you if it would be a priority to ratify the, you, the Law of the Sea Treaty, which she uh, wholeheartedly supports. Uh, so what are you doing to advance the Law of the Sea Treaty? There's a handful of uh, opponents who are concerned about sovereignty issues. It is one of the most important uh, treaties that we need to ratify, and um, we, we prioritized the START Treaty this year. We're going to prioritize the Law of the Seas next year. Um, it is critical to uh, how we're going to manage the Arctic. It is critical to our credibility in uh, working with nations in Southeast Asia over questions regarding China's uh, activities in the South China Sea. It is so much in America's interests, and uh, the objections to it are, are just not well-founded. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to uh, get a hearing on it early in the year and get a vote on it uh, as soon thereafter as possible, because 
as things stand now, it's, it's more difficult for us to deal with what are becoming increasingly pressing um, maritime issues, both in freedom of navigation and in the exploitation of uh, the seabed for searching for everything from oil and gas to minerals and uh, all that else may lie there. So I'm hoping we get to it uh, early next year. Another uh, international issue that you signed in on uh, last year was the Alberta Clipper, a pipeline from Alberta that brings uh, tar sands, oil sands, uh, directly into Wisconsin to the U.S. Midwest. This is some of the dirtiest fuel in the world. And how can the U.S. be saying climate change is a priority when we're mainlining some of the dirtiest fuel that exists? Well, there hasn't been a final decision made. It Are you willing to reconsider it? Um, probably not. Um, and you know, we we but we haven't we haven't finished all of the analysis. So as I say, we've not yet signed off on it, but uh, we are in, uh, inclined to do so, and we are for several reasons. Going back to one of your original questions, we're either going to be dependent right. on dirty oil from the Gulf or dependent on dirty oil from Canada. And until we can get our act together as a country and figure out that clean renewable energy is in both our economic interests and the interests of our planet... Um, I mean, I, I don't think it will come as a, a surprise to anyone how deeply disappointed uh, the president and I are about our inability to get the kind of legislation uh, through the Senate that uh, uh, the United States uh, was seeking. Now, that hasn't stopped what we're doing. We uh, have moved a lot on the regulatory front through the EPA here at home, and we have been working uh, with a number of countries on adaptation and mitigation measures. Uh, but obviously, it was one of the highest priorities of the administration uh, for us to uh, enshrine in legislation uh, President Obama's commitment uh, to reducing our emissions. So we do have a lot uh, that still must be done. and. It is a, it's a hard balancing act. It's a very hard balancing act. Um, but it is also, for me, energy security requires that I look at um, all of the factors that we have to consider uh, while we try to expedite as much as we can America's move toward uh, clean renewable energy. And, the, and the, the double disappointment is that despite China's uh, resistance to transparency and how difficult it was for President Obama and I to drive even the Copenhagen agreement that we finally got by crashing a meeting of uh, China and India and Brazil and South Africa. Um, Would have liked to uh, see that yeah, one. Yeah, that was... <laughs> But we, you know, so we got the Copenhagen Agreement, and, and China, you know, did sign up for it. But at the same time, they're making enormous investments in clean energy technology. And if we permit that to happen, shame on us. And it is something that, 
Um, the United States should be the leader in. It is one of the ways to stimulate and grow our economy and create good jobs. Um, so that, that, that's just a, a sort of a small window into the dilemma that uh, we're confronted with. Well, let's stay with China for a minute. Uh, U.S. has resumed military relations with China. Uh, the currency is not where the U.S. would like it. There's been some appreciation recently, according to Secretary Geithner. And Liu Xiaobo recently won the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, I believe there's a state visit planned later this year with Hu Jintao. Where do you want U.S.-China relations to go before that state visit on those fronts? There is, a, there, uh, is going to be a state visit. And, you know, this is a, another example of our efforts to balance many competing interests. Uh, you know, we um, have committed to working toward a positive, cooperative, comprehensive relationship with China, which is certainly in uh, the interests of uh, cooperation on so many issues uh, in the world today. We continue to uh, speak out in, in disagreement with uh, uh, the treatment of the Dalai Lama and Tibet. We continue to speak out and. Uh, in favor of uh, uh, providing uh, defensive uh, capability to Taiwan. We continue to speak out on human rights uh, inside China. But we also worked very hard uh, to um, have China on the side of sanctioning North Korea, sanctioning Iran, uh, working to implement those sanctions. Uh, participating in the international effort against piracy, uh, looking for ways to partner on clean energy, on uh, uh, finding some opportunities to work on development in Africa, where China has many, uh, many contracts in the exploitation of natural resources, and we want to try to uh, better uh, uh, find ways to assist the people in those countries by working together. So it, it is a constant balancing act, and there is no either-or, uh, because the relationship with China is and will remain you know, a, a core, central uh, focus of American foreign policy for as long as I can see into the future. We support China's peaceful rise. We want China to be a responsible member of the international community. I thought one of the most historically uh, significant actions uh, that just occurred uh, was the statement by Communist Party elders in favor of greater freedom of expression inside China. There is no way the United States can force the kinds of internal changes toward greater openness, democratization, uh, respect for human rights that, of course, we would like to see. We can advocate for it. We can stand up for it. But ultimately, it's going to have to be uh, motivated and directed by people inside. And there will be a day of reckoning, just as there will be on the currency, that pursuing uh, a policy of devaluing your currency is not a long-term strategy for economic success. Trying to have economic freedom and growth without accompanying political openness is just a recipe for an internal collision. 
So there are lots of trends that we can look at and see moving slowly but inexorably in the right direction. And so we have to uh, continue to support that, but at the same time take a very uh, realistic view about what we can actually accomplish right in the here and now that will improve uh, security and deal with some of the immediate threats such as uh, Iran's nuclear program. We're close to the end of our time here. I just want to bring it home quickly, uh, closer to home with Mexico. We have a number of questions about Mexico, uh, the gang drug violence there. They're a country that's about to go from being an oil exporter to an oil importer. So what can you do about Mexico as our neighbor next door? Well, I care deeply about Mexico, and I am uh, extremely impressed by the courage of President Calderon in taking on the... uh, drug uh, cartels, and <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is one of the most uh, difficult fights that any country faces uh, today. We saw it over uh, the last couple of decades in Colombia. Uh, we are watching uh, drug traffickers undermine uh, and corrupt governments in Central America and we're watching the brutality, the barbarity of their violent assaults on mayors and governors, the press, as well as each other in Mexico. So it's been one of my highest priorities, and we have worked closely uh, with the Mexican government to assist them in ways that uh, they've requested. I went to Mexico shortly after becoming Secretary of State and said what I believe, which is that the United States shares the responsibility for the violence that is plaguing Mexico. Um, Our insatiable demand for illegal drugs, our unwillingness to crack down on uh, thousands and thousands of uh, weapons being trafficked across our border into Mexico. Uh, And, you know, I I, I thought it was an obvious thing to say. You know, some um, political commentators criticized me for it, but it, it meant that for the first time the United States was coming to Mexico not to, you know, tell Mexico what to do, but to say, look, we have a problem not you, we have a problem, and we want to help you deal with this very serious problem uh, to, uh, you know, the safety of your citizens and the stability of, of many local uh, governments. So we are, we are working hard, and it's not just a question of, you know, providing you know, Black Hawk helicopters, which we have promised to do, or better uh, equipment for the police and the military. It's also helping them, you know, build an independent judiciary, build a uh, correction system that can actually keep the criminals in once that they are caught, uh, working to improve their conviction and and prosecution rate, uh, which is about 2%, uh, helping them professionalize their police force because they don't have a national police force. And You know, they're moving toward that under President Calderon's leadership. Uh, So every American um, should support what uh, the government of Mexico is trying to do and send a very clear message that we will be their partners and that they do need to win this 
struggle against the drug traffickers. You cannot accommodate the drug traffickers because what has happened is that these uh, drug cartels are now taking on the attributes of a lot of the insurgent and terrorist groups that we see uh, elsewhere around the world. Uh, for the first time, the Mexican drug gangs are using car bombings that uh, you would see in Iraq uh, or, or Pakistan. Uh, you see them uh, being much more organized in a kind of paramilitary way. In fact, one of the most violent of the drug uh, gangs are former special forces uh, members from the Mexican army who went over to the dark side. So this is a this is a struggle that has a huge consequence for the United States, not just along our border, but far into uh, our nation. So I, I I'm glad you asked me about that because I think there is so much more we can do to help Mexico, and uh, we're looking for ways that the Mexican American diaspora can be of help as well. Um, I'm going to be rolling something like that out, uh, hopefully uh, early next year. And, that, and that's a point, Greg, that I want to underscore. Um, I, I really believe, as I said in my opening comments, that um, diplomacy and outreach can't just be left to our government. There are so many ways that uh, we can influence what goes on in other countries. Uh, through technology, like I said, the anonymous crime tip line that we're helping uh, Mexico set up, and through the diaspora, because remittances, especially to Latin America, but also to Africa and, and places in Asia, are often the biggest source of foreign aid. And we've just rolled out this idea that we um, unveiled at the United Nations, uh, along with uh, Honduras and El Salvador, which is to leverage the remittances to assist in uh, infrastructure building uh, in countries that are so dependent on remittances coming from the United States. So we're, we're coming up with lots of ideas, but you know, please, please take this as an invitation uh, to let us hear from you about any uh, thoughts you have about helping us tackle uh, this complex of problems that we face. Uh, the good news about uh, communications technology is that we can communicate. The bad news is we know what's going on everywhere and there's no escape from it. Um, it's not like I could just deal with you know, the biggest countries in the world and call it a day. We know what's going on in every corner of the world. Uh, and that requires that the United States be engaged and uh, effectively so uh, across the globe. So uh, you would think that uh, with virtual communications, uh, our jobs uh, might be easier, but in fact, I think it's more demanding uh, because of uh, what we know and what we're called upon uh, to try to do uh, on behalf of our, our goals and our hopes for the world. Before we close, I'd like to invite you, remind you to please stay in your seats uh, until Secretary Clinton has departed. I'd also like to thank all the people who pulled this together. Take a lot to make this happen. The Secretary's staff has been tr terrific. We've been camped out here most of the week. Uh, the hotel staff has been fantastic, and the Commonwealth Club volunteers and our CEO, Gloria Duffy. Thank you all for making this possible. Your staff's giving us the hook. Uh, I don't know if you have time for a question from a 10-year-old in the audience. Or oh, you need to absolutely. Go? Yeah, I hate to leave. I've really, this has been fun. You're uh, in a position potentially to think about future generations. Um, I am 10 years old, and I'm worried about my future environment. 
What can people do to help? This is Ellie from uh, fifth grade. P.S. I'm here with my teachers. But she's not on, on her own. Um, Hi, Ellie. Well, Ellie, I think that there, um, there is a lot that you can do because it's been my experience that young people are much more environmentally conscious and committed to protecting the world you're growing up in than some of us older people are. And therefore, I think working on projects in your school, uh, asking questions like this of people like me who uh, talk about uh, uh, priorities for our country, I think it's important to uh, work with uh, the um, environment that is right in your area, and there are lots of ways and lots of projects that young people are doing that set an example for what can uh, be accomplished. And I'm out of politics, as you all know. Uh, the Secretary of State is not involved in any political activity uh, and certainly not elections. So speaking as a private citizen, <laughs> I, um, I think people running for office should be asked to explain their positions on what they're going to do. Um, And I know that from what I read in the newspaper these days, there's a lot of um, frustration and anxiety and even anger uh, in our country right now over unemployment, over uh, a feeling that uh, our government's not working, our economy's not working, just a lot of, of, of concern, which is very real. Um, and, and I hope that uh, people take some of that energy and focus it on uh, the environment and on climate change uh, because we really do have to have a longer range view of what's going to make our country strong and rich and smart and, you know, I have no doubt that the United States, and I obviously believe that uh, President Obama's policies are going to be borne out and demonstrate their effectiveness. Uh, we didn't get into the problems we're in today overnight. Uh, we got into them uh, over time, and we can get out of them. But we can't get out of them if we're not thinking if all we're doing is reacting and being upset and mad and looking for, you know, somebody to blame instead of really working together, and that's going to require sort of, you know, a, a renewal of American partnership and spirit about solving the problems that we face and not uh, pretending that they are either ignored or resolved in any easy way. So I'm hoping that your question, Ellie, will be on the minds of everybody, uh, because clearly the air we breathe, the water we drink, uh, the food we eat is all connected to our environment. And it's up to us to give it to you in uh, as good a shape as it should be. Our thanks.
Our thanks to Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton for her comments here today. A private one at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for coming. Hope you'll come and see us again.